Welcome to the New Abbey Podcast. We are a Jesus community telling the biggest story of God in Los Angeles in 2020. We're excited that you're joining the conversation with us today. Enjoy. Uh, you know, we all have this concept of sin that we've probably heard about in, in our church life. So the question for you today, New Abbey, in your conversations is what is sin? Have a good conversation. All right, welcome back, New Abbey. Thanks for sticking with that conversation. I don't know where it went. I hope it was somehow helpful in that it opened up space within us to realize that sin is a huge concept, that we all have a lot of different stories that we've internalized about sin. And my hope today is that you'll leave this time looking at sin in relationship to this concept of returning home uh, to love. Um, because if we look at sin in any other context, then God is love and God loves us. We're basically screwed because sin has to do with love and our struggle to be human in a world that is not loving. And a lot of unloving things happen. So the psalm that I've picked is one of my favorites because it talks about sin, and I have sinned a lot in my life, so it's been necessary to have some context to think about that. Any sinners out there, right? All right, they're my people. Um, so it's Psalm 51, and there are two things I love about this psalm. The first is that it has this, it begins with this idea of Lord have mercy. And the church, uh, early church, adopted this, this prayer, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy, as part of the confessional. And in the liturgical churches, we still use that um, as part of the confession. And the concept, the idea of Lord have mercy is the prayer of a heart that knows not what else to say. And it's a really important prayer for times like this, right, Eric? You know, that we are in a time where we don't know how to pray. Like, how do you pray in times like these? A prayer you can take into your prayer if you pray nothing else, Lord, have mercy. It's a prayer for ourselves. It's a prayer for our neighbors. It's a prayer for our country, our world. Lord, have mercy. So that's one thing I love about this psalm. And the second thing I love about this psalm is that when I was a, a teenager, having been born again, as a junior higher, anyone out there, born again, Christian camp, woo, Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me and has a plan for my life, thank God, because I don't know what the heck's happening. Um, and and it, I was met, I was touched in a deeply personal way uh, with this message that God loves me and that there's hope. And I also, within about nine months of that born-again experience, started smoking pot with my friends all summer. And, <laughs> yeah, right? It was like, and I didn't even think about it because I was not really in a church community. There was no discipleship happening. I just had that one-time experience and la, 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 and then go back and things happen. And then I'm in the summer between eighth and ninth grade or whenever it was. And I, 
we found pot and we found partying and we started doing that. And they were actually my camp friends. So this was a confusing situation. <laughs> and we go back to camp the next summer, right? And I'm not thinking about the fact that I don't even know, maybe one of them snuck pot in. I don't think I did, but somebody might have. Anyway, we get to camp and I get convicted. You know, the Holy Spirit inside of me. I realize, oh, I don't, nobody talked about smoking pot or anything, but I sensed God saying, yeah, this is not a good thing to you, for you to do as a 15-year-old. Um, you know, and I respect adult choices, and we live in a state that has legalized options, so that's fine, but I was 15, and I still don't think it's good for 15-year-olds to smoke pot. Uh, brain development is a matter of chemistry, and we don't want to mess with that. Anyway, that's a sidebar. Um, and at that point, I began this struggle that would live with me for many years as I faced my addictive tendencies, that um, I had this tension. And I went back home, committed to not smoking pot or doing this. And it actually was the summer before 10th grade. And my social circle was all about that. And so for many years then, it was this prayer back and forth of, oh, God, I don't want to go to that party and smoke or drink. It's, I know it's not what's good for me, so, God, I'm, I'm going to go because they're my people and my friends. But inevitably, I'd find myself taking a bong hit, like, oh, God, here I am again. And, and what happened to me, you guys, is <sighs> I was met by grace. Something touched me that said to me, sissy, I, it's okay. It's not okay that you're smoking pot, like, I'm not giving you permission, but I love you, and this is just part of your journey. That, that this is what you're doing, I would later come to understand it, is this is what I was doing to survive. Growing up in a chaotic family where my mom was struggling with depression and suicide attempts, and my brother was, you know, we were just, we were not a healthy family. We were living with the effects of sin, of fallenness, of brokenness, of, of unlove in our lives. And so into that context, somewhere along the line, I found this psalm, and I was like, oh my gosh, this is really good. Somebody understands. So I'm going to read the psalm for us, and then we'll get into it a bit. So Psalm 51, and this is the psalm of David, a man who had been confronted by Nathan, the prophet, about his sin with Bathsheba, and then getting, having an adulterous relationship with Bathsheba, and then murdering, having his, her, her husband murdered on the front line. So this is a man who was suddenly having to confront himself that he had messed up big time. He was not just smoking a bong hit or two. <laughs> this guy was doing some dirty business, and not that there's a continuum of sin, but anyway... Let's hear the word of God as conveyed through the prayer of David. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly of my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified in your sentence and blameless when you pass judgment. 
Indeed, I was born guilty, a sinner when my mother conceived me. You desire truth in the inward being. Therefore, teach me the wisdom in my secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain in me a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from bloodshed, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your deliverance. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise, for you have no delight in sacrifice. If I were to give a burnt offering, you would not be pleased. The sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. Amen. The word of God through a man who, ha, man, David. Well, we pray out of the context uh, that we've lived in. And so David was a man who grew up in this time where it was all about ritual and sacrifice. And that was the part of how people operated around their lack of control of life, which is a lot of what sin is about, that stuff happens. Things don't work right. And so in that world, what the people of those days did is they had gods that they would go and offer sacrifices to and, and believe that if they just appeased the gods that somehow that would stop the crops from wasting away or the hail from coming or whatever the latest problem was. So it was this sacrificial system. So a lot of the language David uses is out of a world that none of us live in. I mean, like purge me with hyssop? I don't even know what hyssop is. I don't know, do you? I could Google it. But frankly, I, I didn't do that, so I don't know what it is still. If anyone wants to put that in the chat, you go right ahead and let us know about hyssop. Um, but this is important because we, too, pray out of the context in which we live. So we're praying out of a different reality than David was praying. And so our prayers are necessarily gonna look different. And what the Psalms do is they give us something to bump up against, not to literally try to understand, well, what is hyssop with? And does that mean I need to like beat myself with some hyssop? And where do I go to the hyssop store? I don't know where that store is. Like, you know, that's not what we do with scripture. It gives us something we can bump up against and then pray out of our own context. The other thing that's important about this Psalm and I think about all the Psalms, is that we pray out of our identity and who we know ourselves to be. And David was a man who had a pretty strong sense of self. He was the leader of, of, of armies, and he was uh, a powerful person who had a lot of privilege in his world. And that was part of how he prayed out of. That's how he experienced his life. And David also knew God's love. 
You know, he was a person who had, was, is known as a, a person after God's own heart. And so even though he was, he had his issues, he had his struggles, he, he used his power in broken ways and he followed desires and passions in ways that hurt himself and other people, he loved God and he knew God's love. And so he begins this prayer with love. And that's super important because if we're going to confess our sins and go to God, we need to begin in love. So David prayed out of his context. My husband, my late husband, Dave Rogers, Dave Rogers on the screen, please. If I'm going to say anything about anything, I have to acknowledge Dave Rogers because Dave Rogers and I, second picture of Dave, there we go, uh, we grew together over 33 years of understanding our own brokenness and sin and the struggles of our humanity. We came together uh, as him go, having just gone through a divorce and finding no help in the church. This was in the mid-80s, and the church wasn't even talking about divorce. And I was dealing with addiction, and nobody was really talking about addiction at that time in the church, maybe a little more these days. And we came together in our brokenness, and so we learned a lot about sin and love together. And I'm going to share a little bit about that. But we have a continuum of experience that informed our experience of sin and our experience of what we heard in church. Dave struggled with depression and anxiety his whole life. And it was hard for Dave to believe in a feeling and a felt sense way that God loved him. Because anxiety and depression, which are not, are not a personal failure, they're a part of the brokenness, the sin of the world that impacts many people. And, but if that's not made known to you, you can grow up feeling like there must be something wrong with you. And poor little Dave Rogers, I should have had a picture, one time went to his mom because he had migraines, but he didn't know it was a migraine. He was a tiny kid. And he went to his mom and said, I think there's something wrong in my head. He was a super smart kid. And his mom, not knowing her own kind of just way of coping, she just laughed and said, oh, David, there's nothing wrong with your head. You're fine. And he's like, no, I'm not fine, but I guess the adults don't get it, you know? And so he ended up internalizing a lot of shame and, and guilt and insecurity around that. So on the continuum of God's love and our ability to begin our prayers and our confessions in love, that was really hard for him because he felt so off and not right inside himself. Um, I, myself, on the other hand, that's not something I struggled with. And I also grew up in a very a family that really talked about God's love in a way that was exceptional for the Catholic tradition I was raised in. I grew up with a God of love. And I didn't understand this judgmental, dis, uh, condemning God that, that I eventually came to hear about in the evangelical and fundamentalist places I, I came to. It was like, huh, all right, well, I don't know, but that doesn't make any sense to me, so whatever. Um, what Dave wrote um, about it is he said, for all of its talk about grace, Evangelicalism is generally a closed system where conformity to doctrine 
and specified practice is required. It is a safe harbor of institutions and forms that provide a sense of security for those who perceive the world as chaotic and dangerous. To question the dogma and doctrine is tantamount to questioning God. Those with questions and diverging viewpoints are often seen as unwelcome and even heretical. Yes, anyone experienced that in your, your church life? And what Dave was working on at the end of his life was this concept of the big G gospel. And he discovered people here in New Abbey that shared this view of the gospel. And he said, the gospel my younger post-evangelicals see is much bigger uh, in contrast to evangelicalism's small g gospel. They see foremost above all a God whose love for humanity far transcends the boxy theology of evangelicalism. Amen? They see a Bible not as a literal and inerrant word of God, but as a marvelously varied human document where the truth far exceeds the text. Amen? They encounter a God whose mystery will forever exceed human comprehension. They are truly post-evangelical, lives change, and I daily thank God for them. Dave Rogers. So the context that a lot of us, heard the gospel and have received these messages about sin have really messed with our, our internal life. So there's, a, there's a, a, something called the feelings about God and self questionnaire. And you can Google that. Frankie maybe put that in the notes. Feelings about self and God questionnaire. Um, you can say Scott P. Scott Richard is one of the, the first author on it. But it's a psychological tool used in treatment with eating disorders primarily. But it's a helpful series of questions that help us think about how do we see ourselves in God? Because how you see yourself and how you see God is going to inform everything about how you receive the good news. And if that's not cleared up, then you're going to not be able to really experience the powerful healing and transformation that Christ offers us. So things like this, so just kind of hear, I'm going to read a few of these, and as you hear it, think about how strongly do you agree or disagree with these, these, these phrases. I feel worthless. I am not a lovable person. God is displeased with me. I am ashamed of myself. I feel incompetent around others. So those are questions that get at your feeling of shame. And if you tend to strongly agree with some of those, it's likely that you've got some therapeutic work to do to clear up some of that. Another series of questions, um, I believe God loves me. God is concerned about my well-being. I believe God forgives me of my mistakes. I believe that God hears my prayers. That says something, how you respond to those questions says something about how you view God. And if you view God as unforgiving, not concerned about you, doesn't care about you, then that's some work to do to clear that up, to get, to get a new reality going on about who God really is and how God really sees you. And then another series of questions about your view of yourself. Um, I believe I'm of great worth. Do you agree with that? Can you say, yes, I believe I'm of great worth. One of the graces of growing up in my family is I always believed I was of great worth. 
perhaps a little bit too much so at times. Um, I thought, yeah, I'm a really competent person and I can do a lot of things. So the point being, and I'm not gonna read on any more of those questions, but how you view God and yourself is going to affect your prayers. So David, he had a pretty strong view of himself and he had a sense of God's love. When it comes to sin, how we view sin is another big piece of the puzzle. Um, Dave Rogers on sin, and his, out of his context, really growing up much more in the evangelical world than I was. As with words about holiness, the word sin has become loaded with concepts and ideas that are no longer accurate or helpful, yes? Um, I propose this perspective, the choice for humanity is to either choose God and love or to choose not love. To choose other than love is what we call sin. What a different way of thinking about sin. To love or to not love, that is the question. 1 John 4, 7, 8 says, for God is love. Those who know God, who love God, know God, love God, and live in love. Beloved, let us love one another, for God is love. Those who love know God, period. Those who love know God. That's the litmus test, and that's the metric by which we have to look at sin. What I believe is that we were created by love, for love, to love, that love is our essential DNA. And what I believe is that before we are ever in a body form, before that sperm meets that egg in the fallopian tube and begins to make a baby and comes down and plants itself in the uterus, there's something a DNA of love that each of us was before, before it even happened. And in that place, we know that we are love and that we are made for oneness, for unity, for harmony, for perfect peace. And yet from the time of conception, it's a struggle. Just for that event biologically to take place, it's a struggle. The sperm has to crawl all the way up through the uterus into the fallopian tube, meet the egg, and then go back down into the uterus and latch on, and then it has to last nine months in there. And we know that a lot of times that doesn't happen because from the very beginning, the struggle for integrity, for wholeness, the struggle to stay alive and actually be a presence in the world is, is, is difficult. First slide for Sissy's uh, quotes. In real life, living in perfect harmony with all people all the time is impossible. And I think that coping and surviving in an unloving world has a lot to do with what my Christian tradition calls sin. We were made for love, for harmony, for shalom, but from the very beginning of the biological entry, it's disruptive, it's hard. The baby then comes out and it's like, ah, what happened? <laughs> you know, there's lights, there's noises, there's people pulling and pushing and, you know, it's like, oh my. This is not going to be a smooth journey, people. And yet, there's something in us that knows 
even before our birth, there's, we're swimming in this sea of mercy, this, you know, it's, it's good, it's all quiet, and there's some noise, but it's muffled, and you hear music, and maybe people get mad and angry, and they yell at each other, but at least it's muffled, you know, and then suddenly the people are yelling at each other, and it's not muffled, and it's really, really scary, you know, and that has a lot to do with what sin is, is that Life is disrupted. People, we don't know how to love each other. Babies are born and mothers don't know how to love the baby right because they didn't get the love they needed. And that has its impact. So all of us are a product of this developmental journey to find a way to cope with the unloving ways of ourselves and others, our failures, our limitations, the fact that we are not perfect. And I also believe that, and I discovered this a lot through my work with eating disorders and perfectionism in the clinical setting, I really believe that there's something in us that knows we were made to be perfect, like we were destined for limitlessness in some way, shape, or form. Our eternalness has this limit, limited, lim, unlimited nature. And yet in this world, we have to deal with limitations with conditional realities, with our own limits and the limits of other people. And sin is how we, a lot of how we survive the fact that we're limited. I didn't go smoke pot because I was inherently evil and destructive and wanted to hurt myself. It was because I had strong feelings and I was living with a mom who was really sick, depressed, smoking, drinking, taking prescription drugs, and having suicide attempts. Did I go smoke pot with my friends because I was inherently evil and I had this deep, deep darkness? No. I was trying to self-medicate. I was trying to survive a very difficult teenage experience. S slide number two. We choose sin as a way to cope with living in an unloving world, a world where we can't always get the love we long for. We sin as a way to cope with stress and shame. We sin as a way to cope with the emotional vulnerabilities that come with being human. Biblical inventories of sins identified some of the more obvious and destructive ways that we, yearning for love, imperfectly navigate an imperfect world of humans especially in order to cope with the shame we feel for being imperfect, for not being enough to meet the demands of our circumstances. Shame is a big factor. And Brene Brown, the prophetess, priestess Brene, she says there's three things about shame. Everybody has it. Nobody wants to talk about it. And by not talking about it, it grows. And yet what we need to do in the mercy and love of God is come before God and each other and say, yeah, I'm, I'm a limited person. I hurt people. I hurt myself. I have a disordered relationship with digital engagement, you guys, and that's my big sin I'm dealing with. I get on my phone and I'm like looking at stuff and it's the, not good for me. It's a waste of my time. And I don't want to do it, but I keep doing it. Anyone have that sin happening? Okay, good. Glad I'm not alone. So confession and prayer... Uh, the psalm of confession, prayer, and the psalms give us examples of different kinds of prayer. So there's the psalm of praise. Everything's good. Praise God. Oh, hallelujah. And then we have the psalms of lament. 
Oh, everything's not working. This sucks. Where is God? And then we have the Psalms of lament that put the finger on God. And God, you screwed up. Where are you, God? And we're given permission to pray it all in the mercy and love of God. We can just go and say what we need to say and pour it all out. That's the God of love that we're talking about here at New Abbey. And then we have the Psalms of Confession. I screwed up. I'm owning my part. I'm taking responsibility for how I am a limited human being, and I don't always know how to love the way I want to love. This is what Dave Rogers and I learned a lot together for 30 years of marriage and 33 years of being in a relationship. How do you go to the mat? How do you just say what you got to say and say it wrong? Because you don't know how else to say it. So here comes my F word, Dave. And that was really hard for him because in his family, they didn't talk that way. In my family, we're all like F and S and women. <laughs> That's just how the Irish dealt with it, you guys. I was the Irish Catholic. He was the evangelical Protestant. And the two met together and we found a way to love. So this invitation is to open to grace, the grace that does for us what we can't do for ourselves. Context is everything. I want to introduce to you uh, Nan Merrill. And Nan Merrill was a white, privileged, probably suburban housewife who became, came onto a contemplative journey and became a retreat leader. And she worked in prison ministry. She had five children and many grandchildren. So this is a privileged white mother who worked with the least of these in the inner city and in the prisons. And here's her rendition of this psalm. And I'm going to read this to you. And I want you to soak it in because I believe that this is the version of the psalm that most of us need more than David's version right now. Uh, like Tim Shell last week, we get, to, we get to experience the psalms in new ways. So hear the word of God as interpreted through Nan Merrill and her mother's heart. Think of a mother's heart. Think of 10-month-old Finn or the other babies in our community. Have mercy on me, O God, gracious one, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant kindness. Forgive me where my thoughts and deeds have hurt others, and I would add myself. Lead me in the paths of justice. Guide my steps on paths of peace. Teach me that I may know my weakness, the shortcomings that bind me, the unloving ways that separate me, that keep me from recognizing your life in me. How beautiful. That's what sin is. It's what keeps us from recognizing God's life in us. For I keep company with fear, which is a lot of what sin has to do with, and dwell in the house of ignorance. Yet I was brought forth in love, and love is my birthright. That's the mother's heart that sees what is deepest in us. is not darkness and sin. It's love. It's God. It's life. You have placed your truth in my inner being. Therefore, teach me the wisdom of the heart. Forgive all that binds me in fear that I might radiate love. Cleanse me that your light might shine in me. Fill me with gladness. Help me to transform weakness into strength. Madison, look not on my past mistakes, but on the aspirations of my heart. Create in me a clean heart, O gracious one, and put a new and right spirit in me. 
Enfold me in the arms of love and fill me with your Holy Spirit. Restore in me the joy of your saving grace and encourage me with a new spirit. Then I will teach others your ways and prisoners of fear will return to you. That's a lot of what grace is about. We're living in a lot of fear. Why are people angry? Why are people protesting? Why are people looting and rioting and doing? People are living in fear. People murder, shoot guns, hurt others because they're living in their own fear, but I digress. Deliver me from the addictions of society, O healer of souls. Let Keep me from temptation that I may tell of your justice and mercy. O gracious one, open my lips and my mouth will sing forth your praise. For you do not want sacrifice. You delight in our friendship with you. The sacrifice most appropriate is a humble spirit, a repentant and contrite heart, O merciful one. Receive our gratitude and love. Guide our steps in the ways of peace. Break through the fears that lead us into darkness. Let the nations turn for more and encourage one another as good neighbors. Let the cities, let the communities turn for more and encourage one another as good neighbors. Isn't that the prayer we need? Lord, have mercy. Dave Rogers also saw a new way of thinking about repentance. Repentance is another word that has gotten a bad rap. And to think about it as returning, what we're doing when we come to the table as Laura's going to come and lead us in in a moment and after our conversation is we're returning to our home and love. So before we go there, we're going to have this conversation. Where in your life do you want to reclaim your birthright in love? Enjoy the conversation. Thanks for listening to the New Abbey podcast. For more information, visit us on the web at www.newabbey.org.